0: Alright, We are uh, in First Corinthians, uh, been slowly working our way through it. Uh, and today we'll be in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 verses 8 through 11. Uh, but I, I think what we'll do uh, to give ourselves a little context is we will start in verse one uh, and we'll read through 11. okay? So chapter 12 starting at verse one, it says, "Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols. However, you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit, and there are varieties of service, but the same Lord, and there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Verse 8. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for all you've given us. Uh, Father, thank you for your word and what it teaches us and what it shows us. I pray that we see uh, today that there is uh, uh, diversity in our gifts that bring about a unity, Father, that's around you, uh, and it's around uh, making much of you, uh, and it's around the mission of the gospel to spread into the world. Be with Joe now as he teaches and preaches your word. Use him today, Father. Convict our hearts today, uh, and ultimately help us to see you, Jesus, and it's in your name we pray amen all right
1: thank you byron Uh, before i get started this morning i do want to uh just turn your attention to the bulletin Uh, if you'll look at the weekly budget and it's got the the needed weekly the received this month the balance in the account all of that information if you'll notice uh there is a pretty significant uh uptick from last week and uh on behalf of byron and myself we would like to uh just thank you for that commitment uh, but also remind you um, that this is something that uh, we really need to deal with in our hearts. It's something that needs to be regular. It's a commitment uh, that we need to make to Christ and, and before Him uh, to, to make this a regular devotion to Him. And so, uh, yes, we applaud you. We, we do compliment you uh, for last week, and, and that is, it's an awesome thing that the Lord did. Um, and uh, we just pray that, that we can continue this because our, our needs are not going away anytime soon. Uh, we are a growing church, and there's a lot of good that comes with that. But there's also a few uh, obstacles to overcome with that. And so we just want to continue to encourage you in that, and, and just thank you um, most of all. So uh, Byron just read the passage for us, and we're we're going through this list of spiritual gifts. And Byron really did a good job introducing this subject last week because this is uh, the the spiritual gifts or the gifts of the spirit are something that have been debated. For years, uh, there's there've been a very uh, hot-button topic uh, among several denominations, and they've divided denominations and, and all kinds of things. And so uh, this morning, we're going to look through this list of spiritual gifts that Paul gives us. Um, and this, I just want to remind you, this is not an exhaustive list. The Spirit gifts people in many different ways. I don't want you to think that this is the only form of gifts that the Spirit gives, and if you don't have one of these, then you're just not a gifted Christian. This is not an exhaustive list uh, by any means. But uh, before we get started, and Byron did a good job explaining this last week, but I just want to reiterate it. Uh, Most of these gifts of the Spirit that we read about have either... Uh with, with the completion of the New Testament, we either have no need of them anymore, or they are attainable to all Christians because of the completion of the New Testament. And while there's nothing in Scripture that we can go on to be um, a hardcore cessationist, and a cessationist is someone that believes that all gifts of the Spirit have ceased completely, Um, There's nothing really in Scripture that's concrete enough for us to go on to make that claim. I will say I would be extremely skeptical of someone saying that they possess one of these gifts. And we're going to get into why um, as we go through these. Um, And so the the main questions we're going to ask, we're going to go through this list. We're going to say, what are these spiritual gifts? Uh, Do they exist today? Have they ceased? What is the importance of them? We're going to answer all these questions uh, this morning as we work through this passage. And um, so we get into verse eight, and it's the very first gift listed. Uh, it says, "For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge, according to the same Spirit." Now he says utterance, and so this means that uh, this is a speaking gift. Someone has the gift to speak something, and what they're speaking is knowledge and wisdom. And what this gift is, is there were certain Christians who were gifted with the ability to um, just totally understand every situation. I mean, they were just the person that seemed to always know the right thing to say. They always knew the right answer. And they had this gift of utterance of knowledge and wisdom. They knew exactly the right thing to say in every situation. I mean, we're talking... probably not to this extent, but like near Solomon-level wisdom. I mean, if you read, we've been going through Solomon in Sunday school uh, for a while, and if you just think about Solomon's wisdom, it's something similar to that is the giftedness that these people have in wisdom. I mean, they just always have the right thing to say. And so, it's just. and this was extremely important because during this time, they didn't have the completed New Testament. So they had to have people that had the right answers Okay, if we run into a situation, we can say, well, what does the Bible tell us about it? What do the epistles uh, of Jesus' apostles tell us about this situation? And we can go to that. We can go to Matthew and learn about what we're supposed to do in certain scenarios of church discipline. We can go to the New Testament and read all of this. Well, these people that Paul's writing to, they don't have the entire New Testament uh, put together like we do today. And so it was important for these people to be gifted in uttering knowledge and wisdom so that they would be able to instruct and admonish their their fellow Christians. However, even in this time where this gift was very important, it was still possible for all Christians to have at least a glimmer of this. Uh, If you go to Colossians 3.16, you don't have to turn there. I'm just going to read a little uh, excerpt from it. It says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Now, think about this. This is not a pastoral letter. Paul's not writing to Timothy um, or or anybody like that. This is a letter to the church as a whole, and he is instructing them to uh, teach and admonish one another in all wisdom. Now, that teach and admonish, they mean to instruct, to counsel, or to warn And so what Paul is saying is, I want you to utter knowledge and wisdom into your fellow believers. And so we see this listed as a spiritual gift, but what Paul is also saying in Colossians is that there is a certain level, okay, there's a a certain portion of this gift that's available to all believers because of the Word of Christ. And we have an extra advantage over the New Testament believers because we have the entire New Testament completed in our Bibles. And, And so... If Paul is commanding the Colossians to at least strive for this gift of utterance of knowledge and wisdom, then we should strive for it all the more because we have an advantage over them. We have the completed New Testament. And so you can speak wisdom into your friends' lives. When you have friends who are struggling with their marriage or with their children or with their job, you can be that person with that gift of the utterance of knowledge and wisdom because it's right here in this book. Now, I'm not going to lie. There are some people today who have an extra, you know, I would say that they're gifted with this, okay? I don't know if any of you know who James White is. Uh, on Wednesday, I talked to the, the kids about him a little bit. Uh, he's a theologian. He's, he's, an apo- he's an apologist. That doesn't mean that he say, says sorry all the time for being a Christian. That means that he defends the faith. Uh, but he, his main job or his main thing that he does all the time is he debates people. And he goes around and he'll go to the Middle East and debate Muslims. He'll, go, uh, he'll debate atheists in the universities. He debates Mormons. He'll, he'll go to Utah and stand outside the temple and, and, and debate Mormons. And he just, he's just a genius. I mean, I don't know what other way to explain it. And so I would say that, yes, he's definitely gifted with this gift of the utterance of knowledge and wisdom. However, we may not be as smart as James White. You may not be able to go toe-to-toe with the most prolific atheist um, you know philosopher and, and and come out victorious, but you do have available to you a certain level of the utterance of knowledge and wisdom according to how much effort you 're willing to put into it that 's a big part of mr white 's uh, you know gift is that he 's willing to put in the effort to study also and so i 'm not going to say that there 's not people that are gifted more than others in this area, but I am going to say that God has given you enough of, uh, enough of this gift, enough of the understanding of His Word that we have in, in the Bible to be able to benefit those around you, to be able to benefit the common good with the utterance of knowledge and wisdom. And so, yes, this is, a, this is a gift that's given by the Spirit. The people that have this gift are not just super smart. God has gifted them with this. But also, all of us can have at least a glimmer of this gift because we have the completed New Testament. You can... Speak truth and knowledge and wisdom into those around you if you're willing to study God's Word and find out what His truth and knowledge and wisdom is. And so that's the first gift or gifts that that Paul mentions is the utterance of knowledge and wisdom in verse 8. Then he moves on to verse 9, and he mentions two gifts. He mentions faith and healing. He says, "...to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit." So faith, we're not talking about saving faith, okay, that is a miracle in itself, that is a gift, saving faith is a gift that God gives us, Um, he he chooses by grace to uh, save us through faith, but every Christian has that, and Paul is, is obviously singling out a certain group of Christians that have this special gift of faith. So this is some extreme supernatural faith that God gives to certain people, certain Christians to enable them for some specific task. Okay, and and just to kind of give you an example, think about Paul. Okay, the one writing this letter, God gave him this supernatural, extreme faith. Okay, Paul's mission was literally to share the gospel with the entire world. Um, He mentions that he wants to go to Spain uh, in one of his letters, and if you know much about this time period, they, the most of the world around the Mediterranean where Paul lived, they thought, really thought the world ended at the ocean. And so Paul took very seriously the command to spread the gospel to the ends of the earth. He wanted to go to Spain because he thought that was the literal end of the world. That's how committed Paul was. In fact, Paul goes back to Jerusalem knowing that he's going to be imprisoned, knowing that he's going to be executed at some point. In fact, on his way to Jerusalem, a man uh, comes to him and and he has this prophecy and and he uh, takes Paul's belt off and, and ties him up. And he said, if you go back to Jerusalem, this is what's going to happen to you. But guess what? Paul went back anyway. He was arrested. He survived shipwrecks. He survived imprisonment. He survived beatings. And he was eventually executed in Rome. But he was sharing the gospel in Rome the entire time. And you say, I just cannot imagine somebody doing that. I mean, I just can't imagine what kind of faith it takes to do that. Well, it wasn't Paul's faith. It was faith that was gifted to him by the Spirit. Okay? Paul was not just you know, super stubborn or crazy. Um, he was gifted that faith by the Spirit. And, and we see this in people today too, I I, I believe. we God has gifted certain believers with just this crazy, extreme faith to allow them to accomplish certain tasks. There are missionaries. I know one personally who was a pastor that I worked under. In the past two years, he has been to Uh, Pakistan, he's been to Turkey, uh, he went to Iraq and Syria when ISIS was at their height. We have missionaries who go to these places, the Middle East, parts of Asia, parts of Central and South America, knowing that they may not come back. Sometimes knowing they probably won't come back. And you say, how can they do that? Well, God has gifted them with this faith. This faith that cannot be conquered because God has a specific task for them and he has given them the faith to carry that task out. Now I know some of you are going to be tempted to sit there and say, "Well, I just don't, I don't have the gift of faith, so I'm not called to be like that radical Christian." Okay, I'm not called to be, you know, just hardcore and radical like that. First of all, um, I love David Platt, but I hate the term radical Christian. Okay, if you're a Christian, you are called to be radical. Okay, the normal Christian should be radical. We are called to completely go against the grain of the culture, completely go against the grain of society because it is a world that hates God, it is a world that hates our Savior, and we are called to stand in the gospel against that culture. And so if you're sitting there and you saying, well, I'm just not supposed to be radical, you know, I, I'm just, I don't have this gift of faith, so I'm just never going to be that radical Christian, well, the Bible does not allow you to do that, okay? Simply being a Christian should be radical. It should be life-changing. It should be something that people see. And also, the Bible does not give you room to be comfortable with the amount of faith that you have. If you look at uh, Mark 9, I don't know if, if you recall, there's a man who's, uh, whose son has a demon, and, and he comes to Jesus, and, and this is right after the, the Mount of Transfiguration, and Jesus comes down from the mountain, and this man is trying to find Jesus. The, the disciples were not able to heal this man's son, and Jesus comes and, and he's talking to Jesus, and that's where we pick up in Mark uh, chapter 9, verse 22. The man's talking and, and he says, It has often cast him into the fire and into the water to destroy him. He's talking about the demon that his son is possessed with. And he says, But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can, I mean, can you hear like this, the kind of attitude in that? Like this guy says, Jesus, if you can do anything, please help me. And Jesus says, excuse me, if I can, what do you mean? If I can. And he goes on, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help me with my unbelief. See, we we see a picture here of a man who, who realized that he's, He's not allowed, Jesus is not allowing him to be comfortable with the level of faith that he has. If you're sitting there and you're thinking, I just don't have the faith to be that radical Christian, be like this man in Mark chapter 9 and say, Jesus, help me with my unbelief. Give me the faith that I'm lacking. Because the scripture does not allow you to simply sit there and be content with the amount of faith that you have, well, I just don't have the faith to go off to some foreign country. You may not be called to that, but you're not called to be any less radical than that missionary. And you're not allowed to sit there and be content with just not having the gift of faith. The Bible says, cry out, beg for more faith. Beg for the faith to be that radical Christian. Beg for the faith to go against the culture. We, in Acts chapter, uh, chapter four, we see that the apostles... Chapter 4, 29, they've been arrested, they've been beaten, uh, they've been warned by the Sanhedrin, they said, don't preach the gospel anymore, don't talk about this Jesus guy anymore. And then they released him, if you remember the story. Um, and so the apostles, they, they leave prison and they go back to, to this small group of people that they have that's still following Jesus, and, uh, and they're praying, they start to pray in Acts chapter 4, verse 29. It says And now Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Even the apostles and the early church, they were not content with their faith. They cried out and said, "God, give us boldness, Give us faith to keep preaching your message. Give us faith to keep preaching Christ." Okay, and so if the apostles, okay, if Peter, the one who was with Jesus throughout his entire ministry, the one who walked on water, if he has to cry out and say, God, give me faith, give me boldness, if God does not allow him to be comfortable with the amount of faith that he has, then we should not be allowed to be comfortable with the faith that we have. If you don't feel like you have the gift of faith, beg for it. Ask for it. Plead for it. Say, Jesus, help me with my unbelief. And so this is, a yes, people are, some people are gifted with just extreme amounts of faith and they have this specific task that God is going to accomplish through them and so he grants them this faith. But that does not mean that everyone else should just sit there and be like, well, that's just not me. I mean, I'm, I'm gonna come to church and I may teach a Sunday school class, but that, that's just kind of it. No, you're called to be a radical Christian. You're called to strive and beg for this faith that makes you like one of these missionaries, like these apostles. So it's the gift of faith. And then he, he goes on in verse, uh, verse 9. And he, he gets to the gift of healing. And this is one uh, that's debated a lot. Uh, this is one that, that causes a lot of conflict because there's a lot of misunderstanding around it. Okay, this gift of healing, we need to understand the purpose of it. The primary purpose of healing people, whether it was Jesus during his earthly ministry or the apostles during their ministry, the primary purpose of healing was not healing that specific person. Okay? And you may say, well, that sounds really rude, like we should care about people. Yes, we should care about people. But the primary purpose of these miracles of healing were to affirm the apostles as apostles. Okay Jesus healed people yes because he cared about them but also because he was proving to people that he was who he said he was Okay anybody can walk in we could have someone here walk in this building and say I'm I'm Jesus okay I came back Well we're going to say well you know first of all no you're not but if you think about this context in the New Testament, people are, people are saying, well, how, how can you call yourself an apostle? How do, Peter, how do we know that you're an apostle? How do we know that you're speaking on behalf of God? Well, when he performs these miracles, if you, you know, make a blind man see or a lame man walk or a dead person alive, then that's going to give you some credibility, okay? You're going to get some street cred if you bring somebody back from the dead. And so these miracles were primarily used to affirm their apostleship, it was used to affirm Christ's deity. Okay, John said that the miracles that Christ, that Christ performed during his earthly ministry could not be held within a book. Like there's not a book big enough that could write down that we could fit all of his miracles in. And, and, and those were for the purpose. Yes, Jesus deeply cared about people. He had a heart for, for, for the sick. He had a heart for the poor. And he deeply cared about these people that he healed. But that was not the only motive behind healing them. It was also to affirm his deity. He said, I am God. Nobody else can do this. And so the apostles, he, he gave these signs and wonders through the apostles to affirm their apostleship. And we need to understand that we don't need the affirmation of apostles anymore, okay? The apostolic age is over. The New Testament is complete. We're going to dig into that more when we talk about prophecy. But we, it would make sense, okay, Since there's no more need to affirm apostleship, then it would make sense that maybe this gift of healing is not used anymore, or at least it's used rarely, because it's not needed for its sole purpose of affirming the messengers of Christ. Also, another reason is um, really the gift of healing has been given not just to gifted Christians, but to the entire world. Okay, the medical advancements that have been made in recent decades, are, are just astronomical. I mean, it, it's crazy. Th- things that, healings that take place in doctor's offices and hospitals today would have been considered miraculous even just a hundred years ago, especially, you talk about first century um, Palestine. I mean, they would have been considered miraculous. And so God has not just gifted a certain group of Christians. He's really gifted in His common grace the entire world through medical advancements. I mean, we have people survive things today and and survive diseases, survive accidents and injuries that that it would be considered a miracle. And so God has, in his common grace, meaning grace for everyone, not just Christians, for the entire world, he has blessed everyone in his common grace with this gift of healing. And then finally, I, I would be very skeptical to say that healing still exists because it has been grossly abused, especially in the U.S. over the last 80 years. Grossly abused. And if, and if you don't think it has, I want you to look up a guy named Costi Hen. I don't know why they named him that. He must have cost his uncle a lot of money. Um, his name's Costi, C O S T I. It is the nephew of Benny Hen. And he was raised in this culture that Benny Hen developed of all these healings and just all of this craziness. And he finally, the Lord graciously opened his eyes to all of that. And he, he has since then, uh, really spoken out strongly against his uncle, and he said, man, this, this, just the abuse of this spiritual gift is just mind-boggling. And so it would make sense, okay, again, there's no scripture to affirm this, but it would make sense that God would look on that and say, you have, you have abused this gift so much. People have used it to make millions of dollars. While well, people suffer and die because they think that they're going to be healed because they sent money to someone. It's been abused so much that it would make sense for God to say I'm not going to let you have that anymore. And so the gift of healing we don't need it would make sense for it to not be around today because we don't have apostles to affirm. We we have medical treatment that just would be considered miraculous. To the people in the New Testament times, and it's been horribly and grossly abused. And so it would make, I would be very skeptical of someone saying that they possess this gift of healing. And then he gets into verse 10, and he mentions uh, miracles, okay? We have healings, and then we just have kind of this general uh, miracles, and, and that would be, you know, things like Peter walking on water. That would be things like Jesus feeding the 5,000 with a couple loaves of bread and a few fish. That would be Jesus turning water to wine. Okay, these are basically just any sort of miracle that doesn't involve healing. And we're not going to get, like, talk about this a whole lot because it's essentially the same line. It goes along the same lines as healing. Okay, these miracles were used to affirm the apostles. We don't need that anymore. We don't have to affirm the apostles anymore because the apostolic era is over. The New Testament is complete, and also these miracles are, uh, have been grossly and, and horribly abused for, for personal gain. And, and so the, these miracles that are talking about, they're going to go right in line with this healing, okay? It would make a lot of sense for them not to be available to us anymore, simply for lack of need and also the abuse that they have undergone. But then he gets into prophecy, and I know this is a very hot topic for a lot of people. Um... In, in verse 10 he says to another the working of miracles to another prophecy and then we're to another the ability to distinguish between spirits that's going to be a big one that we're going to get into in a minute but first prophecy the definition of prophecy the word used here that's translated as prophecy is the revealing of truth in this context specifically the, the revealing of god's truth or the revealing of god's message now there can be two types of prophecy if you're strictly going by this definition. The first type of prophecy does not exist anymore, okay? I, would, I said that with things like healing and miracles, I would say I would be skeptical. If someone comes and tells me that they have a word of the Lord, word from the Lord, and there's not a chapter and a verse attached to it, I will tell them that they're wrong. God is done revealing himself, and he is done revealing his plan, Okay, God, the first type of prophecy is this where God has a prophet, either an Old Testament prophet like Moses or Isaiah or an apostle, okay, such as Paul, and he reveals a message directly to them, and then they in turn relay that to his people, whether it's through speaking or writing it down so that it's preserved. Um, that is the first type of prophecy, it is a supernatural revelation of God's character, okay, which is who he is, or his will, which is what his plan is, okay? It is revealing one of those two things supernaturally to a prophet or an apostle, and then it is in turn delivered to his people, whether it be spoken or written, okay? That is the first type of prophecy, and this prophecy does not exist anymore. And let me, uh, if you'll turn to Hebrews chapter 1, it makes it very clear long ago in verse 1 long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son whom he appointed the heir of all things through whom also he created the world what's that what that saying is okay God has spoken to us through the prophets he's talking about the old testament God has revealed his purpose and his will and his character through Moses and all the other old testament prophets But in these last days, okay, he's exclaiming that we're in the last segment of human history. Okay, there's not another stage after this. In these last days, God has spoken to us through his son, past tense. Jesus was the ultimate prophet. Jesus was the ultimate revelation of God's character and his will. There's not going to be anything else revealed. God does not have something new that he's going to say. And, and and so he has delivered that through Jesus and Jesus has preserved his message by working through his apostles. Paul writes in uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 I don't want to steal Byron's thunder for the next few weeks but if you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 3 it says for I delivered to you as the first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Kephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God." So, what Paul's saying is he, he's going through the sequence of who Jesus revealed himself to post resurrection. And so, and, and if you'll notice, he says, I'm I'm the last one that Jesus revealed himself to post resurrection. I am the last, I'm the last apostle. Right there, Paul's making clear I am the final apostle. There is no more revelation after what Jesus has given me. Jesus is the ultimate revelation. He chose his apostles to preserve his message. And Paul right there says, I'm the last one. There there are no new messages. God is not giving anyone else something new that's not already written in the Scriptures. And, And so if someone comes to you and they say that I have a prophecy, I have a word from God, it better have a chapter and a verse attached to it because his entire revelation is in this book. There is nothing new that's going to come out, okay? That's how a lot of really big heresies have started, okay? That's how the Mormons got started. Joseph Joseph Smith said, hey, I found this new message from God. It's written on some tablets and the and Nobody can read it but me. And everybody said, oh, can I see it? No, it's not here anymore. Okay? I mean, and and we've had so many, uh, the Gnostic Gospels that started just horrible heresies and divided the church during the first century came from a guy saying, Well, Jesus had this gospel that he preached to everyone else, but I have this book that was supposedly written by Thomas because Jesus gave him, like, this new message after he talked to all the other apostles. And this is this message. No, that that doesn't happen, okay? Paul says, what's in the Scriptures, okay, what, what is written in the Scriptures by the apostles of Christ, it's been affirmed by the apostles through the miracles that they've been affirmed to be apostles through their miracles. They've written down the message of Jesus And that's what it is. There are no new revelations. There's no new prophecy. However, there's another type of prophecy going by the definition of this word. It's the revealing of God's truth, and that is preaching. Okay? It is a gift to be able to read God's word, discern it, interpret it, and present it to His people. Okay? There are certain men that have been called out to do that. We call them pastors or elders, or in some translations, bishops. Maybe we should try that term. I don't We could be bishops. Um, and so we call them pastors. They are people who have been gifted. God has called them to be modern-day prophets, not in the sense that God's giving us a direct revelation, not in the sense that there's some supernatural uh, prophecy that God is giving us for us to foretell something. It is in the sense that we faith men faithfully read God's word. He has given them the gift to be able to pull out the truth from God's Word and present it to His people. That is today's term, that is today's version of a prophet. It's not that we have supernatural revelations, it's just that we're preaching God's Word. We have His truth written in His Word and we're simply revealing it to you. And there's another big one that's coupled with this, like I mentioned, the distinguishing between spirits. Okay, remember, this. in Corinth, they didn't have the complete New Testament put together like we do, and so they didn't quite have the full message of Jesus as readily available to them as we did. And so they would have these prophets, people delivering a message from God, but it was extremely important... To, uh, to be able to distinguish whether that's coming from the Holy Spirit or some other spirit. Because like Byron said, the Holy Spirit's a spirit, but it's not, the other, it's not the only one. Okay, maybe this person's speaking from the Holy Spirit, maybe they're from a demon, uh, maybe they had too much wine, I don't know. And, and, and so these people were given the gift of discernment. They could listen to someone speak and say, no, they're, they're demon-possessed or they're just crazy, or yes, they're speaking by the Holy Spirit, this is God's truth. They were given this supernatural gift of discernment. They could tell who was speaking on behalf of God and who wasn't. And, here's, and this gift, I, I would consider, you know, we're not going to rank anything because that's not right, but I would consider the gift of discernment probably the most important of all of these. Because you had to be able to distinguish, is this something that's coming from God or is it something that, that's just coming from their own mind? Are they crazy? Are they demon-possessed? Whatever. It was extremely important to have someone with this gift of discernment, this gift to distinguish between the spirits because you had to know if it was God's message or not. And here's the great thing about the situation that we're in today. If you have a brain and a Bible, you can have the gift of discernment too. If, if you can have... Uh, you know, if you look at First John, okay, John talks a lot about, uh, or Second John, they both talk a lot about, uh, you know, discerning spirits and things like that. And John says, I'll tell you real easy, um, real quick, how to tell if someone's speaking on behalf of God or not. If, if someone affirms the gospel, if someone says that Jesus was God incarnate, that He died for your sins, that His blood redeems you, that He He has imputed His righteousness onto you. And, and, and that he was crucified to take the Father's wrath and he raised three days later, that guy's speaking on behalf of God. That guy's delivering God's truth. But if he says anything else, if he says Jesus is accursed, if he says that Jesus was just a man, if he says that Jesus uh, you know, is not sufficient for our sins, then he's not, he's not speaking for God. If you know, to, to be able to discern, okay, this gift of discernment, this gift of distinguishing between the spirit spirits is available to you, but you have to put in the effort to study the gospel. You have to put in the effort to know the gospel. And that's how we have this gift of discernment, this gift of distinguishing between the spirits. You have to know, if and, and don't take anything for granted, okay? I, I hope that you don't take Byron and I for granted. I'm not saying that we're You know, false prophets. But we are fallible. Okay, we we do. We're not perfect. I mean, close, but um, we're not perfect. Okay, and then especially in today's climate of Christian speakers, you have to strive very, very hard to have this gift of discernment because uh, it's really easy to get swept up into false teaching. Okay, Uh, churches like Bethel. Hillsong, Elevation, they have some really good songs. And some of their lyrics are actually pretty solid. But if you go to their church, if you sit under Stephen Furtick, if you sit under the pastors at Hillsong or Bethel, they preach absolute garbage. And it's not biblical, okay? It ranges somewhere between bad interpretation to just full-out heresy, okay? Depending on where you're at and what week you're there. You have to be extremely careful with who you're listening to, what you're consuming, And there's also been, and it's not just churches like that, there's a lot of guys, a lot of very orthodox, conservative Christian leaders and speakers who are walking away from the faith. And they're taking a lot of people with them. Okay? I love Francis Chan. He's been a great speaker, a great leader, a great pastor for years. But he's doing some stuff that's making me real nervous. Okay? And he's just one of many. We have to have discernment. Don't take anything for granted. I'm not trying to pick on certain people. I'm just telling you, Don't take anything for granted. Know the gospel well enough, know your Bible well enough to be able to discern between these people and say, Man, this guy is solid. Or, I don't, you know, this makes me nervous. Uh, this, This guy is not really preaching God's word. You have to be able to know that. Don't just listen to people and just consume all of it without discerning anything. You have to be able to distinguish between the spirits. And then in that same verse, He gets into uh, tongues, which is always a a very popular topic to talk about. Um, So he says, uh, To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. And then to another, the interpretation of tongues. Okay, evidently there's two types of tongues. We have one type that we see at uh, Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. You don't have to turn there. But what happened was the apostles are preaching. They're preaching the gospel. We have tongues of fire fall from the sky. And then all of a sudden, people are speaking in their own language to foreigners, but the foreigners are hearing them in their language, okay? It would be something similar to uh, if I went on a mission trip uh, to Mexico, and I just decided not to learn Spanish, and I just went down there and started speaking English, which just has been tried before, and it didn't work out. Um, If I went down there, and I was just preaching the gospel in English, and everyone was hearing me in Spanish, that, that's what was happening on the day of Pentecost. And so we see this, that's one form of tongues that we see. But Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, mentions uh, two types of tongues. He mentions this human language, uh, which would be, we're assuming similar to what happened at Pentecost. But he also mentions an angelic or a heavenly language. And evidently, what this was, was some sort of non-human, unintelligible angelic language that people could not understand, and so it required an interpreter. And and in fact, since it was unintelligible, Paul later on uh, is going to say, you know what? If you don't have an interpreter, just don't even let that person speak because it doesn't build up the body. It's just this weird language, okay? It's just this, you know, nobody can understand it. People just think you're weird. Just If there's not an interpreter, just don't even let them speak. And, And And so evidently there there were these mysteries, mysterious messages that they would receive in this angelic language and speak, and someone would have to interpret it. Now, the gift of tongues is going to be very similar. My reasons for being very skeptical of a modern-day gift of tongues is going to be very similar to that of healing and, and other miracles. Because number one, uh, our technology and our uh, just advancement in education has made it a lot easier to learn new languages, for one. I mean, if you're willing to put in the effort, you can learn a new language. Uh, You know, you can get Rosetta Stone. uh, I've never tried it, but I hear it's easy. Uh, But there's all kinds of ways to communicate with people without this supernatural tongues where you speak in your language and they hear you in their language. Okay, it's just with a little effort... You can get that done. We have missionary schools that are excellent at training people in new languages. And so, you know, there's just there's not a lot of need for this type of tongues because we have, we have the ability, you have to put in some effort, but we have the ability to learn all of these languages so that we can send people out as missionaries to these people and speak in their native tongue. Also, um, this gift has probably been more grossly abused than even healing. There's been denominations built around this gift. They say that they add way too much significance to it, and they say that, well, speaking in tongues is the confirmation of your salvation, so we, can't, we don't really know if you're saved or not until you speak in tongues. And I don't know if you've heard some of these people, but I, don't, I would not consider it an angelic language, okay? Um, I mean... It either sounds like they're demon-possessed, or they're just really hurting because they had a bad burrito at Alsop's. I mean, it just sounds like gibberish. Um, But it's been abused. It's been given way too much significance. They've taken this gift out of context, and they've placed it, and they've made it necessary almost for salvation. And so we're not even going to recognize you as a Christian until you speak in tongues, because that's the confirmation. That's not found anywhere in Scripture. And it's also, it's just been made a mockery of. People look at it with with this charismatic movement and they look at it and they they just make a mockery of Christianity because of the abuse that they've given to this gift of tongues. And so if someone tells me that they're speaking in tongues, and especially if there's no interpreter, I'm going to be extremely skeptical. Again, there's nothing in Scripture that allows me to say that it has ceased with certainty, but I would be extremely skeptical. And then the, the interpreter, of course, goes right along with the gifts. The same reasons that I would be skeptical uh, go, go right along with it. And so now, to kind of close all this out, we just went through all these gifts and we figured out, you know, what are they and all, all this kind of stuff. Well, there's got to be a main point to it. The point uh, is this, is what is the purpose of these gifts? I mean, look at verse 11. Paul says, all these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as He wills. So he, Paul tells us all of these gifts, they're given by the Spirit for a purpose. Okay, As He wills, He has a plan to use these gifts. He, he's using these gifts for a specific purpose. Well, what is that purpose? Why does the Spirit give people these gifts? Well, Jesus makes clear what the mission of the Spirit is in John chapter 16. He's speaking to his disciples in 16, uh, 4, the second half, starting in the second half of verse 4. So I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, but now I'm going to him who sent me, and none of you ask me where are you going, but because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper, the helper is the spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you, and when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. What does Jesus say the Spirit's going to do? He says he will glorify me. The Spirit, Everything the Spirit does as he works through believers is to glorify Christ. It's to turn the attention back to Christ. He he convicts the world of their sin. When a lost person is convicted of their sin, when they finally realize that they are in rebellion against God, that they have offended the God of the universe, and their heart is changed, their heart of stone is removed, and they're given a heart of flesh and, and They now have a desire to love and please God, and they have a relationship with Jesus Christ. When the Spirit does that, when the Spirit brings them from death to life, that glorifies Christ. When when the atonement, when the blood of Christ is sprinkled on the believer, and and His righteousness covers them, and, and, and the Spirit converts them, that glorifies Christ. When the Spirit worked through the apostles to found the church to give us the New Testament, the message of Christ preserved, that glorified Christ. In our own lives, when we're led by the Spirit, when we're sanctified by the Spirit, we're conformed to the image of Christ, that glorifies Christ. Everything the Spirit does is to glorify Christ. And so, when it says that the Spirit gives these gifts according to His will, that will is to glorify Christ, He doesn't give it to people so that they can be divided, so that they can be puffed up, so that they can say, oh, I have the gift of tongues or I have the gift of healing and I'm better than you. He gives it so that the believers with these gifts will glorify Christ. And so we need to remember that the most important thing about these gifts is that they're not that important. And I don't mean to say that they're not significant, okay? Anytime God works through people, that's very significant. What I mean to say is they're not important because uh, they're merely tools that God has used to glorify Himself. They're not something that we should identify with. That was the whole problem with the Corinthians. They had an identity crisis They they identified with the gifts that they had. They identified with the wealth or the social status they had. They identified with whichever apostle they followed. I follow Peter. I follow Paul. I follow follow, uh, Apollo. They had an identity crisis. They weren't fighting their identity in Christ. They weren't saying, I'm here to glorify Christ because he's who I identify with. He's my redeemer. They were saying, oh, no, 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 no. I'm, I'm the person with this gift or I'm the rich person or I'm the popular person. That was the whole problem with the Corinthians, was this division. And any time division takes place, you can probably trace it back to an identity crisis. The church gets divided because we stop identifying as one body in Christ, and we're identifying by our social status, by our jobs, by our popularity, by how much money we have, by how talented we are. We start to identify with things other than Christ, because this is a much bigger issue than just gifts. I mean that's the whole theme of First Corinthians is they just they really missed the mark and they were just constantly divided because they were not staying gospel centered they were not staying, staying focused on Christ they were focused on other things they were identifying with other things when we come into this church when we come to the Lord's table we're not farmers or coaches or salesmen or whatever we're Christians. We're not poor or rich. We're not popular or unpopular. We're not white, black, Mexican. We are Christians. That is where our identity should lie. Christ does not... He, he, he has one church. He, he has one body. He saves us into the body. There's not different bodies of, of Christians and they're like, oh, well, this, you know, this is for this group of people. No. Christ saves us as one. One. That was it's talking about the day of Pentecost with tongues and things like that. that. That was huge because not only was it the start of the New Testament church, but it, it symbolized the unity that's found in Christ. There were people from all over the world there in Jerusalem that, that were saved that day, that were converted, and they were converted into one body with one purpose and one identity, and that was to glorify Christ. So here at First Baptist Spearman... I hope that we can have our identity in Christ, not in anything else. I don't care what sports your kids play. I don't care how good they are. I don't care what activities they do. I don't care what your job is. I don't care what kind of car you drive. All I care about is that you have been redeemed by the blood of Christ, that you understand the gospel, and that you're following Jesus with everything that you have. Byron's going to pray for us, and then we'll get into our closing song.
0: Let's pray. Father thank-